Good morning, South Loop. How y'all doing? Good to be with you. Uh, as Sensor shared, I'm, I'm over at our Near North location, which means that um, I'll be giving the same message tonight at 5.30. So I thought this was a great opportunity. I normally have my Sundays off, but Rafe had, had asked if I wanted to come fill in while he was out. And I was like, this would be great. I'll get to try out all the jokes and the illustrations on you all. And then if anything flops, I know what to cut for tonight. Uh, but in all seriousness, I'm really excited to be here because um, I've been on uh, staff at Park for nearly four years and have gotten to know Rafe and just respect him tremendously, as you probably all do. So it's just great to be here with your community today. If you guys want to take out uh, your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus 16, we are going to be um, jumping around a little bit, but if you feel like you're lost, don't worry, I'll have the scriptures up on the screen as we go. Exodus chapter 16. All right, so um, in my senior year of college, my wife and I, um, she was my fiance at the time, we got this awesome opportunity to lead this, this cross-cultural ministry trip down to Cochabamba, Bolivia. And we were with the high school youth group, and we were leading them as college students. And so we were down there, and when we got down there, we found out that the place that we were going to stay, it didn't have enough space um, for all of us to stay in one location. So me and two of the high schoolers, Clint and Richard, we had to uh, sleep somewhere else. And so the night's getting later and later, and I turned to the one guy, Seth, who worked uh, for the missions organization. And he, uh, I was like, Seth, how do we get there? Are you going to drive us? Um, like, obviously, we don't speak Spanish. We don't know where we're around. And so he says, oh, no, come outside. So we, we head outside, and then he starts hailing down a cab. Now, the cabs in Bolivia are just normal cars that have stickers on the side that say taxi. But earlier that day, we had been at a market, and they were selling the stickers to anybody who wanted to buy them. And so uh, this, the first cab pulls up, and Seth, he walks over, and he's got a little piece of paper that shows how to get to the, the other place that we're going to stay. It was like another apartment. And so he gives them the piece of paper, and the person, the taxi driver looks at it, shakes their head no, and then drives away. And we're like, this doesn't look good. Then he hails down another cab. They pull up. Same thing. He looks at it. Shakes his head no, and then drives away. And what I realized, what we realized was that on the sheet, it was not an address. It was a long list of very vague directions. So, like, I'm saying so vague that it was like, at the large tree, take a left. And then when you hear the sound of birds chirping, take a right. And so none of the people, they're like, I don't know where this is or how to get there. This third driver, though, very tentatively is like, Okay. And so then Seth, he turns around to us and he says, all right, hop in. And so we walk over and the, the, the students, they're putting their stuff in the car. And I turn to him and I'm like, Seth, what's your number? Just in case I need to get a hold of you. And he goes, oh, I don't have a phone. I'm like, okay, sounds good. And I'm like, what's Joe's number? He was another guy from the organization. He goes, I actually don't know Joe's number either. And I'm like looking at him and I'm thinking through all the scenarios of things that could go wrong in the scenario. We don't speak the language. We have no cell phone service. We have no idea where we're going. The person has no idea where we're going. And, you know, he could upcharge the fare a ton. He could rob us. You know, all sorts of terrible things that I'm not saying out loud in front of the two high schoolers. So I look at him and I'm like, Seth, what should I do if something goes wrong? And he looks at me and he goes, I'll pray for you. <laughs> And then we hopped in, and we set off. And the car was, was weaving. He's weaving in and out of traffic. They have very loose, lax traffic rules in Cochabamba. And none of his speedometers, none of the meters were working. So who knows how fast we were going. And in the trunk of the car, there's this big, massive metal tank that looks like it's filled with nitrogen. And we're like, that could blow up at any point. 
And sitting next to me, Richard, he, he takes out his GoPro, and he's very silently, uh, very quietly looking at it, and he's like, Mom, Dad, if we don't make it, I love you. And so somehow we ended up getting there. We got there in one piece, and we got out. And so for the rest of the trip, Joe Holman, who was the guy running the trip, he was the one driving us around. Now, the circumstances in Joe's car were a little different, but generally was the same. We, we didn't know where we were going. The traffic was insane. The reason that we were so scared in the one car and not scared in Joe's car, what was the difference? Well, the difference was who was driving it. Joe was someone that we knew we could depend on. He was dependable. He had our best interest in mind. But the taxi driver, were like, he could have literally just bought that sticker and put it on himself. And so that's the big thing for all of us, I think, is that a lot of us were really okay with being dependent on people who we perceive as being dependable. Or to put it another way, our dependence is proportional to their dependableness. Think about it. You got a job because you were like, I can't depend on other people to just give me money to keep me alive. And so you got a job. You got an apartment or a condo because you're like, I can't just depend on people to just give me a living space. And so we do all these things to stay. We don't have to be dependent on the other people. But then at the same time, when you lived at home, you depended on your mom and your dad for those very same things. And you knew you never had to worry about it because your parents, you saw them as more dependable. And so this is, this is uh, the, the whole thing for us. Our dependence is proportional to their dependableness. All right, now I'm going to ask you a pretty big question. And sometimes people up here, they ask questions out there, and it's like, yeah, whatever. I don't, I don't really want to think about this. I want you to literally think about this in your head right now. How dependent are all of you, each and every one of you, how dependent are you on God? Emotionally, physically, spiritually, financially. Okay, so I want you to be thinking about this. Now, now that you have that in your head, you've got that down, the second question is the bigger one. What does your level of dependence on God say about how you perceive his level of dependableness? Does that make sense? What level of dependence do you put on God? What does that say about how much you think he really is dependable or not? In our passage today, uh, we've been in the series in Exodus. Our, the Israelites, they were in this place of just incredible dependence. They were way more uh, dependent for their basic survival than we were in that Bolivian taxi cab and probably more than any of you will ever be in here in your whole life. God had brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery, but now they were in the wilderness. And so I want you to watch at what God does, what God does when it comes to their dependence on him. Does he increase it or does he decrease it? Before we jump in, let me uh, pray to get us started. Lord, we thank you that we have this opportunity to gather and hear what you have for us directly from your word. And my prayer is simply this. Challenge every one of us this morning. Help us to become more like Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. All right, so Exodus chapter 16, we're starting with verse 1. They set out from Elam, and the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. That sounds like a scary place, right? The wilderness of Sin. Sin was actually just a, like a shorthand for the Sinai Peninsula. So it's not like a very disobedient 
wilderness or something like that. So they're in there, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. Verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. These people, they're facing starvation. You can imagine the tension, the anxiety in, in the camp, right? They're, the parents are looking at their kids. Where's the next meal going to come from? Everyone's kind of tired and aching. They've been on the run for two months. And so they're looking around and they're asking, is God really dependable? Can we depend on him in this scenario to get us through this? And so some people, they handled it better than others probably. But then we read that some of the people grumbled. Now, I want, I want to take a, a, a pause here for a second because some of you might be thinking, they grumbled, they're literally on the verge of starvation. This seems like a pretty natural response. Are you saying God expects us never to grumble? This type of grumbling, this specific word, is a, is a different meaning. What it means is like the grumbling of you in your, uh, in your office when people are grumbling about the people leading your company. And you're like, those people up at the top, they don't know what they're doing. They're going to run this place into the ground. It, it, it expresses an extreme distrust of the people who are in charge. And so these people, they're grumbling, saying, does God really know what he's doing? Maybe not. These Moses and Aaron, they don't know what they're doing. This is different than coming to God with your fears and your anxieties, bringing them to him and saying, listen, I'm really scared, or I am really anxious about this, or I'm even angry about this. But coming to God and bringing it to him, that's what he desires deeply from all of us. He wants us to be able to express those negative emotions honestly with him. And so these are two different things, and they have chosen the grumbling route where they've turned and trust God less. And they're even looking back at Egypt and saying, you know what, even though we were slaves, at least we could depend on those slave masters. They were giving us food and shelter and, and all these things. We're out here in the middle of nowhere. Now we have no one to depend on, which that just seems pretty crazy that they're even willing of thinking about when they were slaves. So now, in spite of their grumbling, you think God might get mad, you know, You've heard God getting mad about different things in the Bible. He actually doesn't. He actually sends them and provides them food in a pretty miraculous way. So read with me in verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread down from heaven for you. Sounds miraculous. Jump with me to verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And so this is exactly what God does. He first brings meat. And we read this in verse 13. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. This would have been miraculous, the amount of birds that just came and covered the whole camp for people just to pick off and eat this giant uh, meat dinner that kind of filled them and recharged them. But this was not the long-term solution. God was not going to keep bringing quail all the time. He had a different thing in mind that was actually a lot crazier so we read this in the second half of verse 13. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. And a little bit later, we get a deeper description of what this bread actually was like. We see this in verse 31. Now the, Israel, the house of Israel called its name manna. The Hebrew word manna 
means what is it? For those of you who work in marketing or advertising, you could, probably could have thought of something a little more clever than that, but, you know, for another day. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. This would have been delicious. How many of you all have ever gone to Stan's Donuts? Raise your hands high. That's fine. We're friends here. It's a, I'm not going to judge you. I think it's great. Stan's Donuts, it's like picture like a warm, fresh out of the oven apple fritter from Stan's Donuts, but somehow also healthy and nutritious, right? This is like we're, we're describing the perfect food here that God has given them. But he doesn't just give them the food. He also gives them some pretty specific instructions about how to gather the food, which you're like, that seems a little bit weird. We'll read this in verse 4, second half of verse 4. The people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. Go out every day, gather the portion, that I may test them whether they walk in my law or not. And on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as what they gathered daily. So go out each day. You can only go out, get harvested up each day. You have to go out every day. And then on the sixth day, there'll be twice as much of it for you to bring in. And then on the sixth day, he says that uh, they can't actually store any of it overnight. And so we read this in verse 19. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. All right, these are a lot of stipulations. You've got to go out every day. You can't save it overnight. What's God up to? But they, but they did not listen to Moses. Some of them left part of it till the morning and bred worms and stank. Worms like maggots, like it got all gross and, and maggoty the next day when they tried to save some of it. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Now, not only can they not store it overnight because it gets all gross, and they can't gather it on the seventh day, but they also can only get it in the morning because if they wait too long, it will literally melt. And this should feel a little bit weird. This is like, seems like God's doing a lot to make them pretty, even more dependent than they were before. And so the people, obviously, they're thinking, listen, we're waking up, we're in the middle of the wilderness, there's, there's no food to be found anywhere, and every morning we're waking up and there's this big piles and piles of harvest of food that we can bring in. Now, they, you could see where they would be like, listen, why don't we just gather up some extras and save it just in case God doesn't, you know, have this miraculous bed appear tomorrow. Just in case God isn't really dependable in this area, maybe we'll just save some and then we'll be okay. We'll build up some margin, right? Build up the, the bank account a little bit more to give us sort of like a, a cushion. But nope, God's like, if you try to save it, worms. And so then on day six, right, they're supposed to gather twice as much. Why? We read this in verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. An omer would have been, uh, two omers would have been about four quarts. If you're like me and you don't bake or cook, that doesn't really mean anything either to me. And when all the other leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord had commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over uh, kept aside to be kept till the morning. Now, this is the introduction of the Sabbath. This is a huge topic. It has tremendous theological significance. Jesus talks deeply about the Sabbath. It's a theme that runs through the Bible, starting all the way in creation. But we're not going to dive deep into it today. We're going to cover that more in depth when we hit the Ten Commandments in a couple weeks. But just know that this is increasing the dependence. He's, God's essentially saying, I'm forcing you not to work all seven days. I'm forcing you not to gather food all seven days to increase the dependence. But then we see, what do the people try to do? Verse 27. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, 
but they found none. God said just in the previous verse, um, verse 24, so they laid it aside till the morning as Moses had commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. So even though God says there's going to be none, there's going to be no food, don't even try it, the people you can imagine, they're like, well, it wouldn't hurt to look, right? We can just peek, see if there's any out there. But of course, God's true to his word, and so there's nothing there. And he's, and he's shown that he's dependable also in the fact that he's letting it on the sixth day for some reason not spoil. This is him miraculously adjusting his miraculous system that he created. So it makes sense because he has power over it. Now, for a moment, I want you to put yourself in God's shoes. This is probably not how any of us would have done this. We probably would have not set it up this way. How many of you, by a show of hands, have, uh, have our, how many of you are parents of young children or have nieces and nephews in the family? Some, where you're around younger children. You can raise them up high. A good chunk of you. Okay, so my, my older sister... She has two young uh, daughters. Their names are Carmen and Gianna, and they are just the cutest. Look at them. I'm waiting for the big aww from everyone. Aww, come on. They're very cute. And so the two of them, they'll come up to my sister, and they'll say, you know, we're hungry. Can we have a snack? You know, can we have some, some raisins or whatever little kids eat? And so uh, my sister, she keeps all the snacks up on a high up shelf. And so she's like, yeah, that's fine. So she gets up from her spot. She walks over. She takes the stuff down from the shelf. And she gives it to them. And then they're like, can we have some nuts? She's like, yes. And then she gets up. She walks over. She takes it down from the tall shelf. And then they're like, uh, can we have some? I'm blanking on a third uh, children's food. Something. Yeah, goldfish. Uh, so, so they're like, can we have some goldfish? And, she, and so then eventually she was like, listen, I had a, a brilliant idea. I'm just going to take the food from the top shelf and move it to a low shelf. And then when they ask me, I can say, yes, you can have the goldfish. Go get them yourself and increase their level of independence, let them grow into independent uh, adults who can handle themselves, right? This is what we probably would have done. If we were God, we would have been like, listen, Israelites, I'm just going to do a big old pile of manna, just a, just a big, big pile, and you're going to take some of this. Uh, you can have it today. You can have it next week. You can have it for the next 40 years when you're in the wilderness. And um, I'll come back. I'll check in with you when we're going to go to the promised land together. But look, you, you are set. You've got the food. Feel free to take it as you want, you know? Go your own way. But this is not what God does. God sees them in this condition of extreme dependence where they're essentially about to starve. And he doesn't just provide. He essentially makes it so they have to be even more dependent on him literally every single day by adding all these different stipulations. Now, why does he do this? The clue that we have is in verse 4. we got to uh, jump back a little bit. I said we'd be jumping around. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain down heaven, uh, rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. Look at this part in, in, that's underlined. That I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. God, he's using this as a test to say, listen, when you're in a position of extreme dependence, are you going to lean into me? Are you going to trust me more? Or are you going to grumble? And this is a test for them. God knows what they're going to do. It's not that he's surprised by this, but this is a test for them to make that decision. How are we going to handle this? So there's, but there's an even deeper, deeper reason than this. Think about this. 
for all of you who don't live with your, your parents anymore, you've moved out, you're living on your own or living with your, your family, now that you've moved out from your parents' place, do you see your parents more or less? This is not rhetorical. Shout it out, more or less? Less. Someone at the 9 a.m. service yelled more. I'm like, I don't know how that's possible, but okay. It's less, right? It's obviously less because you don't live with them anymore. When you had to live with them and depend on them for your shelter, for your food, all these different things, you had to see them all the time. You had to go to them in the morning, and, and, and when you got home from school, you were with them all the time. Okay, how many of you, again, raise hands for real, how many of you had mandatory family dinners growing up? A good chunk of you, right? It could feel pretty transactional from our perspective as children at the family dinner. Some of us were like, yeah, you know, my mom or dad is making me sit with the family and eat. I mean, it's the only way they're going to give me the food is if I sit with them. Uh, maybe they'll give me, you know, ice cream later or let me go out, stay, out, stay up later or something if I do this, if I sit with the family dinner. But to your parents, it was never about the food. The point of having the family dinner was not a transaction to, to give you nutrients. That was part of it. But the real reason was the relationship building, the time that you spent together growing the relationship. And it was in these formative years of dependence that a lot of us, our relationships with our parents, grew really strongly. Or if we had parents who were more hands-off or more absent in our childhood, maybe we didn't even get that chance. And so God, think about it. If he had just given them the supply of manna, if he had just been like, go on your way with none of these stipulations, none of the increased things, how, how much would they really have to come and see him? How much would they have to trust him? How much would they even have to think about him? They could be like, thanks for this. When the pile ends, we'll come back and get some more from you. So God does this. He makes this system for their benefit that they have to rely on him a day at a time. And this is not by accident. It's a day at a time by design. It's a day at a time by design that he wants them to be following him. Now, to steal this phrase that Rafe, uh, he often says, look, Let's talk about us for a second. I want to go back to the question that I asked you at the beginning of our time together. How dependent are you on God? How often are you coming to him to actually spend time with him to build the relationship? And then how often are you really just viewing it more transactionally? that essentially you are just coming for the things that he can give you and then saying, I'm done with you. I know it's easy for us to be like, yeah, we trust God. I trust God. I'm in a church. I'm around other Christians. I trust God. But when you look deep in your heart, does the way that you're actually living, does it show that you really believe he's dependable? Does the amount that you're depending on him for, for your money, how you spend your time, how you spend your energy, does this communicate not only to yourself but to the world that you are actually dependent on God? If you are like me, this is something that we get wrong a lot more than we would like to admit. That when we're hit with hardships, when things go wrong, when we, we, we lose our job unexpectedly, the school we were applying for, they reject us. 
a lot of times, instead of bringing those anxieties and those fears to God, we turn from him and we grumble. This is the condition of all of us. But the question is why? Why are we like this? Because if you're sitting here, maybe you're thinking, I don't want to be that way. What is it that's keeping me from being more dependent on God? And, and sometimes it feels like the Old Testament is, is old and it's so far removed from us. It's, it's thousands of years ago and different cultures, different continents. But it's, it's times like these, passages like these, where it really feels like we are the same. We are not different from the Israelites. Because their struggle, right, their struggle, why they were less likely to, to depend on God is because they didn't necessarily view him as being dependable. Remember, we are fine being a certain level of, of having a certain level of dependence on someone if they seem to be that same level of dependableness. And so the, the, the truth is that our struggle is the same struggle that they had. It's the same reason. When we look at God, deep down, if we're really honest with ourselves, we're not sure we can depend on him. We're not sure that he's dependable. Now, you probably don't want to stay here. This is not the place that you didn't want to come in and, and feel like, man, I'm just messing everything up. This is why Christianity, it challenges us incredibly. It, it challenges us, but it also has an incredible amount of hope. And so we can think about the Israelites' story. In many ways, the, the whole story of the Israelites leaving Egypt and going into the wilderness is a metaphor for our own story as followers of God. And so the way that they act mirrors a lot of times the way we act, but the way that God acts also mirrors the way that he acted with them. And so what happened? They were in physical slavery in Egypt, and then God delivered them from physical slavery. Now this is, this is uh, very similar to what God has done for all of us. Every one of us was spiritually enslaved. We all were spiritually enslaved, and then God, he delivered us from spiritual slavery to our sinful nature through his death and resurrection. If you're here and you're, and you're not, uh, you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian or a follower of Jesus or anything, maybe someone brought you here, first of all, just welcome, and we're glad that you've chosen to be with us on your Sunday morning. If you're here, you might be thinking, like, what does that mean? Enslaved? Spiritually enslaved? I was never enslaved. This is what the Christian worldview says. This is sort of how Christians interpret this, the whole of the world. We believe that all, all people, before they know Jesus, all of them are enslaved to something. Enslaved to maybe a different desire. Maybe it's a desire for money, a, a desire for achievements. Maybe it's a desire for sex. Maybe it's a desire to please others or to be in control. Any time that we have taken these things and elevated them to the most important part of our life, they always enslave us because they can't handle that level of dependence. Only God can handle that level of dependence. And so each of us was in this place of spiritual slavery, and then God sends Jesus. And we believe that the hold our sinful nature, these things that had over us that were enslaving us, their hold was crucified with Jesus on the cross. That when the Bible says he took on our sin, it doesn't just mean in a, in a guilty way that he, now we're no longer guilty. It also means the power that those things had over your life. He took that on, and almost like a kamikaze, it died with him. The problem is that, that sinful nature is intrinsically part of us. 
It's a part of how we're wired. It's the part of the way our brains are wired. It's all messed up because of it. And so our, our natures were crucified with Jesus. And so if the story ends with Jesus just dying, then there's no hope for us. But the second half is just as important as that Jesus comes back to life. And the people, when we put our faith in Jesus, we are also brought back to life spiritually. And so we see that the story of the Israelites, it mirrors our story exactly. He delivered them from physical slavery. He delivers us from, from uh, spiritual slavery. And so, but this is not the end of the story. Because remember, he brings them out of Egypt, and then he brings them where? Into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, now they're facing physical starvation. Now they're like, I don't know where my next meal is going to come from. And so God, he provides for them a day at a time. He gives them manna and bread from heaven. And in the same way, we put our faith in Jesus and we were brought out of slavery. But that's not the end of our story either. The moment that you said, I'm going to become a follower of Jesus, was not the ending of your story as a Christian. Because why? Because we've been brought out of slavery, but we are living in the wilderness. And we face not physical starvation, but spiritual starvation. And so God, he provided for them manna, and he provides for us as well. God prevents us from spiritual starvation by giving us Jesus a day at a time. Now before you think, like, is this stretching this too far? This is right from the pages of Scripture. This is how Jesus, he tells us to pray. This is in Matthew 6. He said, Give us this day our, say that word with me loud and proud, South Loop, daily, our daily bread, a day at a time. He wants his people now in the wilderness, living in the world today, to come to him on a daily basis. But what is the bread that nourishes us, that spiritually nourishes us? This is what Jesus says about himself in John 6. He says this, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live Forever, Jesus, he's our manna. He's our manna, and we are meant to come to him every day, daily, to depend on him a day at a time. And Jesus is trustworthy. Jesus is trustworthy. He's dependable because he proved, that, he proved it by rising from the dead. He said, I'm going to be crucified, but then I'm going to come back to life. And so he rose from the dead, and so we can depend on him daily. We can come to him every day and expect to be fed. Now, now, some of you are maybe thinking practically, what does this look like? What does this actually look like? Because, you know, I was an English major. I love metaphors. Maybe some of you are like, metaphors are not my jam. Please bring us back down to earth. There are tons of ways that we can be nourished by Jesus every single day of our lives. I think the food metaphor that he uses is actually particularly helpful because when he's talking about food, think about this. Of all things that you're uh, fine with being dependent on, food is probably at the top of the list. You're like, you know, I would be okay depending on food once, twice, maybe even three times a day I'll depend on it, right? Food is something that we're dependent on. And so Jesus, he gives us this metaphor. He's saying, I'm like food. And so we are nourished spiritually when we come to him in prayer, when we come to him by reading his word, when we spend time with other Christians who encourage us and challenge us and, and build us up, when we serve people in the name of Jesus, all these are ways that Jesus fills us up and grows us. But the thing is that you're going to wake up feeling hungry for Jesus every single day of your life. 
you, if you're a Christian, this is your reality right now. You just might not have realized that that was the source of your hunger. Think about it. It's like 2, 3 p.m., and you're feeling really down, and you're like, you know, I just feel like I'm in a bad mood today. Everything feels a little bit off. Picture if the Israelites had this same conversation. They're talking to each other like, you know, I just am not feeling so great. Everything just feels a little bit off, you know? And the other one's like, well, did you eat the manna? And he's like, well... I did on Sunday. Well, it's food. That's the problem. You have to eat the food every day. It's like, no, but you don't understand. I ate a ton of manna on Sunday. We had a whole group of people, and we ate it all together. That should be fine for the rest of the week. No, this is not how food works. You have to continue to come back to it every day. For some of us, God might put us in scenarios where we're more dependent on him. Like, he'll, he'll forcibly remove things from your life. He'll, he'll uh, allow you to undergo times of suffering, and, and he can use these things to bring us deeper to him. Sometimes he redeems us of those sufferings in this lifetime, and sometimes he redeems it in the next time, but he's with us in that suffering. Jesus is with us, and he can use these factors to help bring us back to himself. But for some of you, you might not actually be in positions of dependence. Life might be okay right now, and you might be like, you know, I'm actually doing pretty fine. You might have to artificially create times and scenarios where you actually are more dependent on God. This might look like actually taking a full Sabbath, a whole day of work where you are not working, and just focusing on God. This might look like taking your extremely busy, well-mapped out schedule and actually intentionally removing some pieces so that you can have more than just a little snack of Jesus here and there, that you can actually have a full meal. Can you give up Netflix for, you know, a, a couple hours per week to be able to spend that time with God? Now, I understand this is going to be hard. This is a challenge for all of us. We're going to mess this up. But the thing is that we can look back to the Israelite story. They messed it up over and over and over again. They kept uh, not trusting God. But what does God keep doing? He keeps providing. Because even when we're not dependable, God is always dependable. This is what grace means, is that when we mess up, it's not the end of the story. This is going to be a process for the rest of our lives. But that's how God designed it a day at a time. I'm going to pray to close our time. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that you have given us Jesus. That Jesus is all the nourishment our soul needs. And that you didn't just give him to us once on the cross, but that you've given him to us to be with us every single day. He tells us, Lord, his, his promise in Matthew is, Behold, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. Lord, help us to, to repent, to turn back to you of the ways that we, we haven't been following you. Help us to, to say, God, help us to come back to you, to trust you deeply, to depend on you. Lord, we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.